Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Do you know a little girl who dreams of becoming an astronaut, a fighter pilot, or an aeronautical engineer? Today, we're celebrating the achievements of women who dared to follow their own dreams at a time when they were laughed at and dismissed. My first guest, Rebecca Siegel, is the author of To Fly Among the Stars, The Hidden Story of the Fight for Women Astronauts. Rebecca will tell us about the early years of America's space program. In 1959, the superstar test pilots and military heroes chosen for NASA's first astronaut class, the Mercury 7, were all men. But 13 brave women trained in a secret, privately funded program hoping to earn their place among the stars. These accomplished air racers, test pilots, and flight instructors later lobbied the White House and Congress to have women included in the astronaut program. The rest, as they say, is history. Rebecca's riveting tale about Jerry Cobb, Janie Hart, and 11 other women serves as an inspiration for any girl who doubts that she can achieve whatever she sets her mind to. I interviewed Rebecca in February of 2020, just weeks before the pandemic was declared, when all of our lives and plans changed dramatically. Our conversation has stayed with me the past year, and I'm happy that we have a chance to share it now. I'll also talk with Dr. Ronke Olibisi, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of California, Irvine. She'll tell us about her childhood dream of becoming an astronaut and how that led to her career as a biomedical engineer and inventor. First, here is author Rebecca Siegel. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to be talking about To Fly Among the Stars. Could you tell us about this amazing work of nonfiction you've just published? This is a narrative nonfiction book that tells the story of the birth of the American Crew Spaceflight Program and of 20 pilots who underwent the Project Mercury astronaut tests. Um, so seven of the pilots were men and the remaining 13 pilots were women. They were all elite aviators, all brave, ambitious, loved to push limits, but only the men in this story could get through NASA's official selection process. Back in its early years, NASA was only considering military test pilots for the job of astronauts, and not just any military test pilots, but they wanted the very best and very brightest from this already elite bunch. So what NASA did is they put these guys, and they were all guys, through this really uh, rigorous selection process that included very intense involved tests. So there were medical tests, psychological tests, and stress adaptability exams. And the point of this whole thing was to see who would be able to 
best withstand what was going to happen in space. And it's important to know we didn't really know what would happen to a human in space at that point. So it was all guess. But in the end, after this long process, seven men were chosen to become the nation's first astronauts, and they became known as the Mercury Seven. And these are familiar names, guys like John Glenn and Alan Shepard, people who would later grow into huge American icons. And at the time that all of this was happening, women were not allowed to fly in the military. And so automatically, they were excluded from this whole process, which could have been the end of this story, right? Uh, But there were a couple of guys involved in the original astronaut selection process at NASA who were curious about the idea of women astronauts. One of them was this person, his name was Randy Loveless. He was a physician, and he'd been really heavily involved in selecting NASA's first astronauts. He'd actually hosted the medical portion of the astronaut testing at his clinic. So, you know, it was sort of easy for him to to then extend that testing program to women. And over the course of a year, he invited or he had these 19 women pilots come out to his clinic and undergo the same Project Mercury medical exam. Now, I need to specify here, Loveless's Women in Space program was not a NASA sanctioned testing program. It was privately funded. He was doing it purely out of curiosity because he had this idea. He had a question. He wondered how women would do in space. And at least at first, it looked like they might make great astronauts. So Loveless had 19 women out to his clinic. And out of those 19, 13 women, 68% of this group, they passed their medical exams with no medical reservations. And just to put that in context, uh, 56% of the male candidates passed with that same endorsement. So it it looked good, you know. It seemed like there might be a reason to continue looking into this idea, could women be good astronauts? And so Loveless decided to test more women. So, or he'd test women on further exams. So his first test subject was this woman named Jerry Cobb. And she had um, been the first person to go through all these tests. She was performing so well. And so he decided, let's keep going. And she underwent two more phases of astronaut testing and training, mimicking what the men had done before her. And she shocked everybody by performing exceptionally well on these activities. And it looked for this brief, you know, magical moment, like she might actually become an astronaut. And not just that, but, you know, there's these 12 women waiting in line to do those same tests who looked like they might do just as well as she had done. Um, And then (laughs) things got complicated. (laughs) I don't want to give anything away, but it's safe to say that this was an unpopular idea at NASA. Objections arose and these marvelous women I'll just say they put up a heck of a fight. Tell us what it was like for Jerry Cobb and the other women who had this hunger to fly when they were growing up. Sure. So Jerry Cobb started flying at age 12. Her dad was a pilot. She grew up knowing about airplanes, curious about airplanes. And like so many other women in this generation, getting into an airplane was really hard. People, number one, didn't want to see a woman flying an airplane. But number two... Learning to fly an airplane is expensive. You have to have access to an airfield. So Jerry 
lucked out because her dad could teach her to fly. And so essentially from age 12 on, she was at the airfield learning how to fix planes, how to fly planes, doing whatever she could to maintain this habit. And that's something that you see sort of throughout the book and all of these women. Um, Once that flight bug bit, they were almost powerless to resist it. And then they had to go to great lengths to make it work. So Janie Hart, one of the women who tested to become an astronaut, she came from this really wealthy family and her parents did not want her to learn how to fly an airplane. So she snuck out of the house to do it. B. Stedman, another one of these women astronaut candidates, she, she came from very meager means. And so she worked as a spark plug inspector and she used every dollar she could to pay for her flight lessons so that she could get that pilot's license. And that's something that you kind of see over and over with these women is this hunger to get up into the air. And then, of course, once they started flying, they had to deal with the stereotypes of what a woman what a woman should do and what she's capable of doing. And then also just resistance from men who did not want to see women doing this. It came down even to their wardrobe. <laughs> Either they had yep. to be dressed up or they <laughs> they even right. had a powder puff derby, I think. Is that right? That's right. So the powder puff derby is actually, it's a race that still continues today. It's just got a different name. But the, you know, early air racers had a dress code. You know, they wanted to be wearing matching skirts. Um, look put together everything. There are stories of these air racers finishing grueling air races and having to pause on the runway before they could get out of their plane to quick shimmy out of what they were wearing, usually like comfortable shorts, and put on a dress really quickly. Because there was this idea that even if a woman is doing something as phenomenal as flying an airplane, there was still an expectation that she needed to look like a woman. And that meant feminine, put together, have her makeup on, that kind of thing. Yet when women went to pilot a plane, they were told, no, people would be too terrified to see a woman here as a pilot. exactly right. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems very few women of color were able to fly. I mean, this is, we're talking about mostly white women here. Is that correct? That's right. So white women had a hard time getting into airplanes, um, but women of color had a much harder time getting into an airplane. And so you see looking back at these stories, how that played out. So for example, Bessie Coleman was the first African-American woman to get a pilot's license. And um, she actually had to go to France to find someone willing to teach her how to fly. And that was because they just didn't want to let her into their airplane. We see that changing now, finally, but there's still a long way to go. I'm wondering, Rebecca, what inspired you to tell this story in particular? I grew up really, really loving the American space program. I still love it. I, it feels like this magical thing that we are able to somehow like put our heads together and fling a human into space and then bring them down again. It just, it, it seems preposterous. And so I spent a lot of my childhood looking at people like John Glenn and um, Jim Lovell as just heroes, you know, almost, almost superhuman. And then when I read about the women who underwent Project Mercury astronaut testing, it was, I had this almost visceral reaction to it. It felt like this paradigm shift because these were my heroes, but I was realizing that they had participated in and honestly benefited from this organization that was 
had really oppressive practices. And I just thought, oh, no, does this mean they can't be my heroes anymore? Does, do I have to rethink everything? And my, my emotional response to that was so intense. I thought, oh, I wonder if this is a book. It is interesting. We see how tough it is for women, for people of color to catch up in STEM careers because they've been excluded for generations. How do we overcome that? This is a great question. Um, and as we were saying, you know, white women had a hard time breaking into American aviation and women of color had such a harder time. And I think that's something that we're still seeing today in STEM careers. Today, aviation is still very white and very male. But I think, I hope that that's actually going to change. So we're on the verge of a huge boom in international aviation right now. So we're facing this worldwide shortage right now of qualified pilots for all kinds of aviation jobs. And a lot of airlines are going out of their way to make an effort to recruit from underrepresented populations. So this is great. Boeing, for example, last year announced that they were setting aside millions of dollars. I think it was $3 million for scholarships for women and minority students who are interested in learning to fly or have careers in aviation maintenance. So I think that's going to be great. But I also think that's just part of this solution. I think we have to have a cultural shift in how we think about women pilots if we're going to grow and maintain a thriving population of women in the cockpit, including women of color. And so I think we all have to examine our own biases about what we think when we see women in STEM careers. And I think that's going to transfer to aviation, but I think a lot of different things. So this doesn't speak to race, but it speaks to gender. There was a study a couple of years ago, I think it was at Embry-Riddle, where people were asked to rank the configurations they'd like to see in the cockpit of a plane that they're going to fly in. So there was four options. Option one was two male pilots. Option two was one male, one female. Option three was two females. And then option four was just a computer in the <laughs> cockpit, which people don't like to fly with just a computer. They don't like that idea. And I'll give you a guess. Like, what the computer got last place, but who got second to last? Two women. Two women. And this is after people have acknowledged that there's no difference between the skill sets, the capacity, that there are no riskier, all of these things. And there still is this uh, instinct to look to a man first. Now, you yourself, though, overcame this stereotype and got into a plane and learned how to fly. (laughs) I love that. Tell us what was scary and what was exhilarating about it. So I did learn to fly, which was honestly one of the greatest things I think I've ever done. And the scariest part of the whole thing, honestly, was just picking up the phone to book the flight lesson, which just, I remember sitting at my desk thinking like, this is preposterous. I'm this like quiet writer who who just spends her day at the library and I'm going to learn to fly an airplane. But then I did. And, you know, it was so easy. So, and it's not scary at all. Like, even when you're practicing doing something like stalling, which is this maneuver where you're deliberately making your aircraft stop flying for a second, and, you know, this leading up to it, your cockpit is filled with these alarms and the plane is shaking and you're getting closer and closer to it and then you thump, you stall. 
even then it wasn't scary because it's so controlled. You know, you've educated yourself on exactly what's happening and what to do and what to do if plan A doesn't work and plan B. I mean, of course it helped that I had a flight instructor who was amazing. Um, I honestly felt like he could probably do the New York Times crossword, the Sunday one, while doing this. Oh my goodness. Um, But it was a wonderful experience. That's so great. And it also speaks to how many careers are out there that aren't necessarily that of a pilot in terms of engineering, mathematics, Mm -hmm. maintenance, building a plane. So there are a lot of opportunities if we open the door for women. Oh, there are so many cool job opportunities to pursue that honestly have nothing to do with getting into a cockpit or flying on a spaceship. And as I was saying, you know, there's this boom in aviation right now. And so these jobs are going to be opening up in the next couple of decades. And they're they're just so exciting. You know, aeronautical engineering is the easiest, most obvious choice here. But beyond that, there's like space robotics and flight mechanics and you could People, if they wanted to become a planetary scientist and meteorologist, those are jobs that have to do or that can um, impact the way that these spacecraft are flown. And then NASA has this thing called, I think it's called the Career Corner, where they highlight some of their more unusual careers. And it's, it's a trip, you know, like spacesuit designers. And spacesuits, by the way, are like spaceships. You know, they're these incredible contraptions designed to keep somebody alive as they're floating around in outer space. You know, you space suit designer, or you could be somebody who's a spacesuit technician. It's just the possibilities. It's such an exciting time to be excited about aviation and space. What do you hope young readers will take away from To Fly Among the Stars? I hope young readers are able to see all of the obstacles that all of these pilots overcame. So this story is obviously highlighting that Life was easier for the men than it was for the women. But every one of these pilots had overcome some incredible obstacles. And they were doing it because they had found that thing in life that was really revving their engines. You know, they had all fallen in love with aviation. And because of that, they were willing to take these incredible steps. And so I I would hope that kids would see that. And if you don't want to be an astronaut or a pilot, great. But I hope everybody finds something that they love that much. For me, it's writing. I feel like I can't not write. And I would do almost anything to keep writing. And that's how I I think these people felt about spaceflight. What led you to weave the stories of the men of the Mercury 7 in with these 13 women? I was just curious editorially. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because that was a very deliberate choice. (laughs) And I hope... I hope it accomplishes what I was going for. So the reason I did it is I think it's really hard to understand the magnitude of what the women did if you aren't reading it in the context of what the men were doing. I think taken in isolation, it's impressive. Like, oh, wow, yeah, these women flew out of planes and underwent astronaut testing. But I think unless you stack it up um, event by event next to the men, it it lacks a little bit of um, legitimacy almost. And speaking of legitimacy, there's this habit that people have in the space history community of discussing these people as, and the story is kind of a blip, like a historical aside. They get a lot of sidebars in space history textbooks, but they never get a chapter. And I think that's because there still is this attitude that these women never had a chance 
they were wasting time. This was a silly project. And I frankly don't think that that's the way that this should be looked at. I think if you stack their stories right in there next to the men and you can compare the way that their lives developed, their career trajectories, how they started out so in such similar ways, following such similar paths, then you can sort of see that, oh, no, these women were legitimate contenders. No one was giving them a chance. No one was calling them that, but they were astounding aviators and just as talented as these men. It's just that circumstances made it so that they didn't get a fair shot. I'd love to go back for a moment to Janie Hart. You mentioned her. She was the mother of eight children, I think. Yep. Flew them to camp. Talk about her testimony before Congress, which really was, was riveting. So Janie Hart's testimony was very impactful. So she, her husband was Phil Hart, um, a politician. So she had a good grasp on how to make a fiery political speech. And she did it. So her testimony was angry. It was um, commanding. She thought it was ridiculous that space was going to be reserved as a stag club. She also made a point of saying if women choose to stay home, be homemakers and raise children, that that was great. But she wanted everybody in that room to acknowledge that for some women, the PTA is just not enough. Um, And she was one of those women. She was not content in her role simply as a homemaker. She didn't want to just stay home with her kids. She had that aviation bug and she wanted the chance to fly. It's terrific that she really was in the forefront of feminism and really spoke out. Very courageous, I thought. I was actually just yesterday looking at some articles about Janie for a different project. And I was recalling she once flew her husband in her helicopter to a political event. It was just, you know, she was doing a little, she was sort of his pilot. She flew him. The press took a bunch of pictures as he stepped out of the helicopter and she was wearing shorts. And everybody just wanted to focus on the fact that a woman was wearing shorts and flying a helicopter, not that her husband was doing this speech or simply that, oh, wow, this is impressive. A woman's flying a helicopter. They were just very upset about her shorts. Oh my gosh. The contemporaneous news accounts that you include about women's wardrobes and other details are are just so frustrating to see now. Yeah. And I, you know, these women, to their credit, they handled this with grace, you know, um, over and over again, the women that I interviewed have said the same thing to me, which is, that's just how things were. I would ask like, well, weren't you frustrated? Weren't you angry? And for the most part, they would say, no, you know, we felt lucky that we were flying and this is just how men were. This is such a great read, Rebecca. Really, I, I salute you. I couldn't help but think while I was reading this book, Katherine Johnson died, the pioneering NASA mathematician and physicist who was African-American. One has to think, I mean, how remarkable the obstacles she overcame to have such an extraordinary career. Absolutely. And I think Johnson was like so many of these women at this time orbiting the American space program. She had just this very strong compass. And, you know, she was brilliant. Of course, she'd shown that from her childhood. But beyond that, in her adulthood, Johnson advocated for women to be really assertive 
even aggressive, which is something that required a lot of bravery because at that time, a lot of men would have been quick to kick her out of the room. But, you know, Johnson had the brains to back this up. So she was able to really earn her seat in the room. And I think what Johnson had was what these Mercury women were really chasing. Johnson had proven herself again and again as a valuable member of the space task group. And she was there because she had earned her spot. And I think these Mercury women just wanted to earn their spots as well. Over and over, there was this message as this whole story was unfolding that people didn't want to have women astronauts just because they were women. And I think all these women who underwent these tests were agreeing, yes, we don't want to be there just because we're women. We want to be there because we're great pilots. That's a perfect note to end on, I think, Rebecca. It says it all. And what a message for young girls out there. You know, just be the best you can be and you will succeed. Exactly. Now, here is Dr. Ronke Olabisi, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of California, Irvine. Hi, Ronke. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. We're delighted to hear your thoughts about women in science and what you think the future holds for today's girls. Could you tell us about your own career in biomedical engineering and what drew you to the field? Well, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. I can't remember wanting to be anything else. I decided when I was, I think, 15 that I was going to go to MIT for undergrad. And the thing about 15-year-olds is their decisions are very black and white. And I decided that because it was the only school that I could find that had an astronautical engineering program. I had seen others with aeronautical But, you know, I was like, I need to be an astronaut, astronautical engineering. And it was fine. You know, I liked it and everything. And I took this class that was a materials class. And the professor said, I want you to design a material for a non-aerospace application. And I just couldn't think of what to do. So I hunted and I hunted through the Internet. And I stumbled upon a hip implant that had failed. And the reason it failed was because the bone around it had optimized itself to be as little as possible. It was this natural optimizer. And I fell in love with bone. And so I became a biomedical engineer. So cool, Ronke. Tell us a little more about biomedical engineering. What does it entail exactly? So it's a really broad field. I think if you think of almost everything that has to do with the body and has to do with engineering kind of encompasses it. So if you think about, oh, I hurt my knee, I want to go and get an MRI scan. Biomedical engineers design that. If you think, oh, I want to go get the COVID vaccine, Biomedical engineers design a lot of the tools that are used to deliver the vaccine. So the tools that are used to grow up the vaccine, the tools that uh, it's delivered in a, a lipid nanoparticles, biomedical engineers do that. I could go on and on. And so just anywhere that medicine and the body interface with something that needs to be invented, 
a biomedical engineer probably had something to do with it. Tell us about the link between medical breakthroughs and inventions and what we learn from space exploration. It's actually really kind of cool. When you're in a microgravity environment, it causes a lot of changes to the body. And a lot of these changes are similar to what happens in pathological states. So a woman who has gone through menopause, she'll lose bone at a rate of about one to 3% per year. An astronaut will lose that same amount at a rate of one to 3% per month. So if as a biomedical engineer, you're looking at these two model systems, you can figure out, well, if I have a drug or a treatment or something, I can test it in a postmenopausal woman and find out in 10 years if that worked, or I could test it in an astronaut and find out in one year if that worked. There are a lot of things that mimic states that happen on earth just by being in a weightless environment. Gosh, getting the perspective of a scientist is beyond helpful, as we all know. Ronke, when you were a little kid, what drew you to the sciences? I think I'm an explorer at heart. I'm curious. I'm one of those people who's like the poke it with the stick person. So I just have this incredible sense of wonder. Um, I want to be out and look down on the earth and see it in its entirety. People have talked about that experience and how it it makes even the most ardent disbelievers have a spiritual experience. I want to see the universe. And I think part of exploration is making the world better. And part of exploration is bringing back the discoveries. And I mean, obviously I can't go see the universe, but I can see more of our tiny part of it. How do we keep that curiosity alive for girls, especially girls of color, who may be interested in pursuing a career in science, but aren't quite sure how. Studies show that many girls get discouraged along the way. I think it's okay to have secret dreams, right? Because uh, dreams that you only share with people that you trust. There was a time that a lot of people expected me to outgrow wanting to be an astronaut. And hello, I still want to be an astronaut. And that never went away. And I think... There was a time that I just stopped sharing that dream with people that I didn't trust because if they were going to make me feel silly, I wasn't going to tell them. There will always be people that will encourage you to be what you want to be. And there will always be people who encourage you to be what they think you should be. And my dream was to become an astronaut. And when you follow that dream for a very long time, you're bound to meet actual astronauts. And I did. And they never discouraged me. They never thought it was silly because it was a dream that they had and it was a dream that they achieved. And so I chose to do it through engineering. I always liked taking things apart. I was always good at math and astronaut became my secret dream, the one that I shared with other astronauts. And if you want to become a doctor and there are female doctors who won't discourage you, if you want to become, if you're a woman of color, if you're a girl of color, Women of color doctors are going to be trustworthy with that dream. They're not going to tell you you can't do that because you're a girl of color because they're women of color. If you're not able to find somebody that's near you, you can find somebody on Twitter, somebody on Instagram or TikTok somewhere. 
there we exist they're doing what you want to do and if we're on these platforms instagram twitter or tiktok we know what it's like and we're out there for you and if you reach out to us we'll definitely be trustworthy with that dream of yours what a lovely sense of kinship i'm sure that will make a huge difference for so many girls now i know that you're working on a project with retired astronaut may jemison could you tell us about it? So it's the 100-year Starship. If you look at the Apollo program, right? And so if you look at how in 1961, Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. And then by 1969, we had, that was eight years for that project. Right now, we're living in the space age. You're wearing glasses, and you have scratch-resistant glasses because they needed some form of scratch-resistant plastic coating for the astronauts for their visors, right? So we have, we're, we're interacting online. We have internet systems. We have cell phones. We have GPS, all because they needed to communicate with the astronauts. So they developed communication satellites, which we did not have before. And NASA has this page where you can go through all of your household items that you did not know were directly related to the Apollo program and the benefits that came from it. It's completely transformed our world. Like even down to filtered water, we have filtered water because they needed a way to filter the water for the astronauts so that they weren't drinking contaminated water. Countless things, right? Now that's just from eight years now imagine what would it have been like if in 1869, they said, let's go to the moon in a hundred years. How would that have transformed our thinking? How would that have transformed our technology? How would that have transformed our world, right? And so it's kind of more of a thought piece. So the hundred year starship is what do we need to be able to go to another star in a hundred years? And it's not necessarily important that we actually have a ship and actually go there. But what are the kinds of things that we might need? Well, I could imagine that we might need suspended animation, right? And there are researchers who are looking into hibernation and to torpor, which is a, a, a type of hibernation. And that would help people on Earth. So if you need a surgery that only one surgeon can do, and we put you in in suspended animation until you can get there, then you're more likely to survive. Or if you have a rapidly growing cancer and there's a drug that's on the market, but it's not going to make it to the market until your lifespan is expected to decline and we put you on torpor, maybe you can survive for that drug. That's just one example. So what are the kinds of things that we would need to go to another star? Well, we would need better energy. Do we need better energy on earth? Yes. Right? And so it's the kinds of things that would be predicted by a pursuit because engineers are really good at doing model systems. And so the reason that getting men to the moon helped so much with things on Earth is because, you know, a spaceship is kind of a model of Earth. You know, they're alone in space. They only have the resources that they took with them. There's not going to be any backup once they use them up. And that's exactly what Earth is. But in the 60s, they really weren't thinking about recycling. But for a spaceship, you really have to. So the requirements for the spaceship predicted our needs for today. 
And so the requirements for a 100-year Starship spaceship will predict our needs for today. And that's the idea behind it. Gosh, that is absolutely extraordinary. Now I'm thinking about the Mars rover Perseverance. What do you hope we learn from that exploration? And how can we continue to make space exploration in general more inclusive? I think that our culture tends to assume that men are always the best for any job. And when we see women in a role that's traditionally been dominated by men, it's often met with skepticism. Like there's an assumption that it's for PC reasons or for diversity, but we tend not to address those assumptions. We, we tend to just say, let her do the work. But I think by not addressing it, those assumptions can grow and take root. I think there are obviously we're different. There are different. There are things that men can do better and there are things that women do better. And if we watch the Olympics, we see this. There's some overlap with the average man and the average women, but the absolute strongest man in the world can outlift the absolute strongest woman in the world. But is this a factor in space exploration where things are weightless? Like, does that because the strongest man is stronger than the strongest woman, does that make him a better astronaut? No. Is that going to be a factor for Mars exploration where Mars has only 38% of our gravity? No. And there are things that women do better than men. What are those things? Well, we're lighter in general. We don't eat as much. We cost less to send into space, right? It's roughly $100,000 per pound. So sending a 120-pound woman is calculably cheaper than sending, you know, a 180-pound man. Also, there are several isolation studies that show that women, when we're isolated with others, we behave a little more in a social and communal manner, and we're less likely to act with aggression. Whereas when men are isolated, they often approach isolation with attempts to compete for leadership of the group. And that can lead to aggression. Now, it's not 100%. Again, just like not 100% of men are stronger than 100% of women. But women are definitely less likely to suffer cognitive effects from cosmic radiation than men are, according to studies in mice, at least. Uh, Can we use these to promote women? Like, no, we're not just trying to be more fair. Actually, women make good astronauts for the following reasons. The best astronaut we've ever had is Peggy Whitson, who's a woman. You can see multiple male astronauts stating this. There's also evidence that modified melanin might be helpful in protecting against the cosmic radiation, which can be detrimental. There's currently this melanin being explored on the space station, undergoing tests. Can we use something like this to promote people with a variety of skin tones to explore the effects of natural melanin? I mean, I think you can promote that this is a good idea, not just for equity reasons, but because the the science is taking us there. That's a great way to frame the issue. On another note, you're working on an exciting new project at Scholastic. It's called Rising Voices, and it's a classroom library that will be available this summer. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, so I'm excited about it because it's this classroom library of uh, culturally relevant books and, and these teacher resources. It's for kindergarten through fifth grade, and it centers on the representation of women and girls as leaders in STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. 
And what I'm hoping for is that it's going to inspire young girls and boys too, to pursue their dreams. And it will help kids understand that. I think the, the problem is, is that history it is largely written by those who are able to do it. And the groups that were denied it, uh, you don't see their faces, you don't see their voices, and you don't know their, therefore that they were capable. This is trying to counteract that. And I, I want girls of all colors to know that they can do this. And I want boys of all colors to know that girls can do this. Perfect. Thanks so much for sharing your insights, Ronke. We hope the young people out there will shoot for the stars. Thank you. My great thanks again to Rebecca Siegel and Dr. Ronke Olibisi for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed and for resources on women in STEAM, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. <laughs>